This episode of Safe Space Radio is brought to you by the Lerner Foundation and listeners like you. Anne here with a quick request for you before we start the show. Gabe, my producer, and I are always trying to come up with ways to improve Safe Space Radio. And one thing that would really help us do that is to hear from you about what's working for you about the show and what you'd like us to try. If you could take a minute to answer a short five-question survey after you've heard this show on Refugee Women in Maine, we would be so grateful. You can find it by visiting safespaceradio.com and clicking on the button that says Survey. It won't take long, and it'll help us keep pushing the show in new and exciting directions. Thank you in advance for your response, and thanks for listening. This is WMPG. I'm Ann Hallward, a psychiatrist in Portland, Maine, and this is Safe Space Radio, a show about the subjects we would struggle with less if we could talk about them more. Today we continue our series on refugee women in Maine by learning more about the process of being a refugee or an asylum seeker. There's a lot of confusion and concern about how securely refugees are vetted before coming here and what the difference is between someone who comes in as a refugee or someone who comes in seeking asylum. My guest is Phil Mantis, an attorney at the Immigration Legal Advocacy Project, ILAP, here in Portland. He's been coordinating their asylum cases for almost two years. He studied law at the New England School of Law and also has a master's in American Studies. Prior to moving to Maine, he worked in private practice in Massachusetts, where he specialized in immigration law, again with a focus on asylum claims. Welcome to Safe Space Radio, Phil. Oh, thank you. I want to start out with, with getting to know you a little bit better. So you've had this interest in immigration, it sounds like, that's longstanding. What was it about immigration work and asylum cases in particular that made you want to do that with your life? Yeah, you know, I've had an interest in um, immigration and immigrant cultures uh, since I was an undergraduate, but I actually didn't have an interest in immigration law until I graduated from law school. Um, my project, my final project when I was a graduate student was in um, the influence of immigration cultures in, in popular music. What particular culture were you interested in the influence of? My case study was actually on uh, Hispanic punk musicians in Los Angeles in the late 70s um, and early 80s, kind of using that case study to, to make a larger comment on a, a American popular music. But, um, you know, when I was in law school, what I was interested in being a litigator, but also working on behalf of people who didn't have um, the same access to justice that a lot of, you know, more moneyed people would tend to have. Um, so I had an interest in legal aid. It's very difficult to get a legal aid position directly out of law school. I ended up working in private practice, which I like a lot. But the firms happened to... Um, specialize in asylum cases. And we represent a lot of individuals from North Africa and the Middle East who are fleeing uh, persecution. And that's where my interests stem from. Uh, and as an associate there, I ended up taking a lot of the asylum cases that uh, came through our door and just became pretty well-versed at it over time. Tell me about some of those early cases you worked on. There are certainly cases that, you know, when I was working on them, I had a bit of a cynical outlook on how these cases would turn out. These are individuals who usually were probably denied uh, asylum, and I'm trying to appeal their decision or get their case reopened, and then, you know, winning some some of these very complicated uh, appeals and, and motions to reopen in certain cases, um, and realizing that you know my subsequent optimism in certain cases kind of stemmed from my clients' optimism in their own cases, and telling me what you know what to look for and what to look into and what to what to argue. Because it sounds like, ironically, I mean, I can imagine the opposite. I can imagine so many people who go into 
immigration law and asylum specifically who become more cynical. And it sounds like you actually had the opposite experience that it renewed your faith in the possibility of really helping people. Oh yeah, absolutely. It, it, I think working in immigration law, it's a it's a roller coaster of optimism and cynicism and oh, yeah. pessimism. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, there there are days where I feel really pessimistic about our immigration process, not just the asylum process. Um, and there are days where I feel really optimistic about it. Um, so it really it, it ebbs and flows, and, and, and um, it really depends on you know the moment I'm in, I guess. So I want to understand better the difference between coming here as a refugee versus coming as an asylum seeker. Let's talk about the refugee process first. Mm -hmm. Can you just walk me through how that works, where it starts, and so on? Yeah, sure. So the main difference between a refugee and an asylee. So an asylum seeker is granted asylum. They're called an asylee. So there's um, a a difference in terminology. A refugee is someone who enters the United States with a status. Um, That means they've been designated the status abroad. by an authoritative body, it's the United Nations Human Rights Commission for Refugees, um, and that body has said that that individual meets the definition of what a refugee is. And what is that definition? The definition of a refugee is an individual who is outside of his or home country or otherwise stateless, who can't return to their home country because of a fear of persecution on account of their race, religion, nationality, or membership in a particular social group or political opinion. Um, those are five protected grounds. Um, and they have to show that there's a um, that the government itself, their home government, was um, complicit in this persecution or will be complicit, uh, or um, the government will, uh, will not or cannot control or um, the people that may inflict this persecution on account of one of those protected grounds. Um, Tell me again those five. Sure. Political opinion, nationality, race, membership in particular social groups, or religion. Okay. Um, let's say someone is fleeing Somalia. Uh, they're fleeing you know, Al-Shabaab, and they go to Kenya, and there's a refugee camp there. They have to, they'll, they'll go through processing in those refugee camp, and their cases will be vetted by the UNHCR, and eventually if they're um, found to have met that definition, they can go through the resettlement process. And they can be resettled in many different countries, uh, the United States, Canada, Germany. But, you know, then, you know, when before they're resettled in a certain country, that country performs their own background checks on an individual uh, to make sure that they don't pose security threats and and so on. Um, And when someone's granted refugee status and they're um, allowed to resettle in a certain country, um, in let's say it's the United States, they'll be issued a, uh, not a visa, but it'll be a document that allows them to enter the United States as a refugee and they're allowed to stay indefinitely. Um, And then after they're, uh, after residing in the United States for one year continuously as a refugee, they can then apply for permanent resident status, which is also known as a green card. Can they start working? Yes. As a refugee, they're able to work um, just because of that status. It's a permanent status. It grants them the right to work. Um, They can access certain um, things that, you know, only permanent residents or citizens can access, access, for instance, like um, financial aid, uh, federal financial aid, things like that. Um, Asylees are different in that they they have to be here in the United States, um, first of all, um, and they can't come in with a permanent status. Uh, these are individuals who are essentially saying that they are refugees, but they haven't been designated as such um, and are asking to be designated as such by the United States government. So this would be an individual who may have entered with a temporary visa, like a student visa or visitor visa, or may have approached the border of the United States um, and asking the United States for protection. And then they go through this asylum process. And there's two processes for asylum seekers. And they're commonly referred to as affirmative process or defensive process. 
Uh, an affirmative process is where an individual would come to the country some way and ask the Department of Homeland Security for asylum. And they do so by just saying an application and providing corroborating evidence uh, to the department. And eventually the department will hold an interview with that individual. And this process is completely non-adversarial, meaning that it's nothing like court. The interview um, uh, just allows the officer to receive all the testimony from the applicant so the officer can make an informed decision about his or her case. And the defensive process is performed in immigration court. So there's actually an immigration court system in the United States, and it's run by the Department of um, Justice. Are, are there standards of proof by which you have to demonstrate that you really are at risk of persecution higher in the court as opposed to in the affirmative process? No, no. Um, if you're seeking asylum, it doesn't matter which process you're going through. The evidentiary standard that's placed on you is the same. Okay. So, so taking a step back now, is there a glut of people seeking asylum in this country? You know, what, what, what is the real big picture story right now? Like, do you have any sense of how many people in this country right now are seeking asylum? Um, I don't know. Uh, you know, you, you could probably be able to hobble together a number, but it'd be quite difficult. So it may be simply that our awareness about refugees is so much higher right now. Mm -hmm. um, but is there an increase in the number of, of people as refugees and asylum who are really needing home and seeking it here in the United States? Um, I would hazard to say yes, uh, on, only because of a couple events. And one event is the surge of um, asylum cases that came from our border, uh, individuals seeking asylum from Central America last year. Um, that kind of has waned a bit, although there's been a slight increase recently. Um, and there's a massive amount of people, 60,000 individuals, a lot of them uh, children, coming right. to the border and asking for asylum. Right. Um, and a lot of those individuals are going through a defensive process if they're of a certain age. And then in terms of refugees, uh, it's hard to say. We have a cap on the amount of refugees the United States takes, and Congress sets that every year. And what it, is it now? Uh, last year, I think it was around 70,000. It goes down and it goes up. So it's not a very big number for no. such a huge country. Um, yeah, probably not. Um, and so right now, you know, the, obviously because of the large conflicts in the Middle East, um, in particular Syria and the surrounding countries, um, yeah, it'd be safe to say that there are a lot of individuals who are seeking protection, not just the United States, but in other, you know, other industrialized nations. I think the latest number I saw in Syria was that since 2011, 4.1 million people have left that country seeking refuge. Uh, I'm really I'm not surprised. Yeah, so it's surprised. a huge... And so... What is the security vetting process? Because there's a lot of anxiety about that right now. Mm -hmm. um, what kind of background checks is a person subject to? I mean, any and all um, background checks that are available to the United States government for an individual. I honestly can't speak um, with too much knowledge about the, the background check program uh, performed on refugees. But it is, I do know, it's long, and it's uh, cumbersome. Um, and... It can take years. Uh, so an individual could actually be in a refugee camp for, you know, um, including all of the other administrative stuff that they have to go through that's not related to the United States background checks. You know, they could be in a refugee camp for 10 years before. 10 years in sure. a camp that has, like, almost no security forces or law. Sure. I, you know, I encounter individuals who are born in refugee camps all the time um, and then are able to actually come to the United States without actually having ever been in their home country. Um, right. And so... Uh, 
from what I understand, it's quite a thorough background check for every individual. For asylum seekers, it's the same thing. Um, so an individual seeks asylum, they have to have their biometrics information taken by um, the, by the immigration service. What is biometrics information? Biometrics would be like your fingerprints, your photograph, um, and other identifying information. Um, so I know, in, I know a long time ago, I don't know if they still they used to test for HIV, TB. Do they do kind of medical checks as they well? They do. The medical check stuff really happens um, at the green card phase. Oh. So, yeah, if an individual wants to. So if some, someone doesn't need to pass a uh, medical test in order to receive asylum in the United States. Uh-huh. They do so. They do have to pass such a medical test if they want to become a green card holder, yeah. permanent resident. So I want to now kind of bring it more micro. So you've kind of yeah. helped us understand the sort of larger systemic processes. Coming to your office here in Portland, Maine, uh-huh. where you run the asylum, you coordinate the asylum cases, um, are you the only, is ILAP, the Immigration Legal Advocacy Project, the only organization in Maine that does this, or are you one of a few? We're the only uh, organization that has a full-time program like this, uh, and it's Immigrant Legal Advocacy Project, just for clarification. Uh, and I can go over a little bit about, or kind of give you an overview of how our program works. Yes, well, so for instance, I think the, the biggest question I have is, how do you decide who gets a lawyer and who doesn't? Because in the interviews that we've done, mm-hmm. some of the women we've interviewed have had a lawyer and some haven't, and yeah. I wonder, how, how do you decide that? Um, so just to give you an overview of yeah. what we do first, is if someone comes to our office and wants help with an asylum case, you know, first I'll meet with that individual and go over you know, what our organization is and how we help individuals. Um, and you know, ILAP helps Maine residents with many types of immigration matters, not just asylum. So we help people who are victims of domestic violence because there are special visas for those individuals trafficking victims. We help people who um, lose citizenship and, and green card applications, family reunification, other types of processes. Uh, and so, but we help asylum seekers in a kind of a special way in that we uh, utilize volunteer lawyers to take on cases. We don't do that for other types of cases generally. So the volunteer lawyers that we, we utilize, we call refer to them as our pro bono panel. And we have about 134 attorneys um, throughout the state that are a part of this panel. You know, I'm tasked with uh, training these attorneys and, and, and monitoring their work um, and mentoring them, uh, you know, on a as needed basis. Uh, and so what I do is I vet the cases that come to, to me to make sure that the individual is actually eligible for asylum and, you know, to, and then to flag any hurdles that the person might encounter uh, in seeking asylum. And if I feel that person's um, case is strong, uh, then I'll take the next move and try to find a lawyer for that individual from the panel of lawyers. And what would be an example of a case that sounds strong to you versus a case that does not sound strong? A lot of individuals, unfortunately, come to us too late. People who want to seek asylum in the United States have to do so within a year of coming to the U.S. It's a black and white rule. So uh, one year after their last entry to the United States, they have to file for asylum. There are some exceptions to that, but there are limited exceptions. And when you say file, does that mean they come and ask for it, or do they have to complete their application? Complete their application and send it, file it with either the immigration service, if they're going through an affirmative process, or file it in front of a judge if they're in, the, in court. So when someone wants an attorney from me, I have to you know, vet that person's case, um, and I can't vet all the cases that come to me at once, so there's usually a waiting list for individuals to get through this process. Um, and then I have to perform research on the person's case. I have to go reach out and find an attorney for that person, and it may take several months. Um, so that person comes to me, and they only have two months left before their deadline, and probably won't be able to find them a lawyer or help them in that process. What recourse do they have? Do they have to file their application on their own? They might. There are a lot of people who file on their own, and we refer to those individuals as pro se filers. Pro se is the Latin term for self-represented. 
Um, and the unfortunate reality is most asylum seekers in Maine are pro se. They're representing themselves. It's a big problem. And so what ILAP did is uh, we uh, collaborated with the Maine School of Law in 2013 and created a manual um, for applicants to file on their own. And it's a how-to book written for lay people on the entire affirmative process. Um, and that manual has been translated into French and Spanish and Arabic. Um, and in addition to that, <clears throat> myself and Justice for Our Neighbors in the clinic at the law school, we hold a monthly um, workshop for pro se filers. And that occurs on the second Tuesday of every month at Hope Gateway on High Street. It's open to the public. It's at 6 o'clock. Usually just asylum seekers show up, but um, anyone else can show up if they want. And it's a four-part series, and each part talks about a different aspect of the affirmative process. So, for instance, the first part, we talk about how to fill out I-589. We go box by box, how to fill it out. Um, and then we talk about how to prepare a written statement. Um, then we, you know, then the third discussion um, goes over how to gather evidence in support of a case. Then we have a whole um, section devoted to how to file your application, where to file it, what to do after you file. And do what people make use like? of this? I mean, this sounds like a great resource. They do. Um, we, we have good turnout. Um, you know, the, the attendance you know goes up and down uh, for sure. But um, and you yeah. have do you have translators there? Yeah, yeah. It's all it's it's in French. Most, most of the um, vast majority of the attendees um, speak at least French. So you've been doing this work for almost two years. You you must have met, I don't even know how many asylum mm -hmm. seekers at this point. Can you tell me the story of someone that you've worked with that kind of walks us through the process to give us a feel for what it's really like for one human being? Yeah, sure, absolutely. I have an example that's a little bit more complicated, but I think it gives a, you know, a clear understanding of, you know, an awful situation that can become good, um, and in the, in, the, in the case is still ongoing. So this is an individual who came to the U.S. Um, without knowing the language of immigration, meaning they didn't know what to say when they got here. They knew that they had to get out of their country, and they did, through the help of very nice people back home, um, and got here and didn't know what to do, didn't know to speak the language, um, was ju just become the age of um, majority, so the person just turned 18. Um, and a lot of the bad things that happened to this individual occurred over throughout her childhood. Um, and she was able to escape this really awful situation. And she got here, and the people that were helping her out in the United States turned out to be not so good people. And she got in a really bad situation here, and she was trafficked um, for about 18 months, um, a labor trafficking. And because of that... So why don't you say exactly what you mean by that? Labor trafficked? She was forced to work against her will and receive no money. Um, so, so she was essentially a slave. Right. Um, and this person, again, does, doesn't know anything about American culture. It comes from a country where that might actually be a normal thing. Um, it was eventually able to realize the situation she's in and escape from it and had been shut off from the world for about 18 months. Um, and on her own, um, was able to navigate across country and come to a community that um, that already exists here in the U.S. That you know, people who already knew her language and so on, knew her culture. And then once she got here, was able to come to our organization, and uh, I was able to take that case on personally. And now that individual's cases, a couple of cases are pending, um, but uh, she has um, a therapist here in Maine that she sees regularly. Uh, she's now got her work authorization. She's looking for work. Um, and I'm 100% certain that her case would be approved. Um, and this is another example of you know how 
it, uh, this one-year deadline can operate to really hurt people. If she, if if an adjudicator says that, you know, I don't think that you have a good reason for missing that deadline, then she could be denied asylum just for not just complying with the deadline. Luckily, she can she can hold you know she can say that I, I made a, a, an exception to this deadline, which is an extraordinary circumstance, in that I was brought here and then trafficked um, against my will. Um, and you have to provide evidence. Yeah, that's you is know, that hard the, to do. Well, with her, I mean, we got Homeland Security involved in the tracking case, so we can <laughs> the, the agency can provide evidence themselves or look at their own evidence. It was this part of a group that was trafficking other people as well. Uh, no, it a... was an individualized thing. Uh-huh. Yeah. How common is that? Uh, I don't know. It's hard to say, but you do you definitely do come across it. And um, one tends to think with young women of being sexually trafficked, mm-hmm. and I I get the sense that that's far more common than we realize. Far more common, absolutely, and in Maine as well. I mean, and I know every side of the political aisle is is now addressing this issue that this is far more prevalent in in the state of Maine than people like to admit. Um, that there's uh, a lot of sex trafficking and labor trafficking, and it's not just obviously um, <clears throat> particular to immigrants, but immigrants are much more vulnerable, or could be much more vulnerable right, than a lot of them. If they're, you know not legal, then they're in a vulnerable state to begin with because they can't really call on law authorities to Right, yeah. Them. And there's also another, you know, there's another avenue of, of control that, it, uh, you know, a, a trafficker can can uh, impose on a, on a victim. You know, I, I'm going to call immigration on you. I'm going to get you exactly. deported. I'm going to get you out of here. Right. Um, it's so disturbing to hear about that because the sense I've also been getting is the extent to which refugee women have already been sexually assaulted mm-hmm. and their home country before getting out is also vastly higher than I knew. Right, yeah. And on what basis would you say that most of the cases, the affirmative asylum cases that apply and get turned down, that get referred to court, mm-hmm. what is the basis for that denial? Uh, it could be multiple reasons. One of the main reasons is because of the one-year filing deadline. Um, and it's really, you know, if so you miss the number one reason is nothing to do with the merits of the case, but it's simply a logistical... Mm. Yeah, uh, absolutely. Um, another one would be, you know, there's credibility, which is uh, probably, the, if I, I would hazard a guess, uh, the second reason why someone's, uh, you know, so an asylum officer may not say you're lying, but I don't entirely believe you. Um, and so I'm going to refer your case to court. Um, and that might be because they don't have enough evidence or because something to do with their how they present themselves. Yeah, it could be demeanor. It could be the amount of evidence they provided. Um, so the people that you're working with, do you coach them on how to present themselves as yeah, American? Absolutely. Yeah, you have to prepare your client. Because I imagine that's now. part of that's even cultural, like how you relate to someone, you know, the degree of eye contact. Sure, yeah. Um, and because a lot of individuals don't realize that when they're going through this asylum interview, they're really playing a game with the asylum officer. Obviously, they filed their application and their entire life history with the asylum officer. They've already done a background check on that individual. But then you, when you approach the interview, you have to act like the asylum officer has no, knows nothing about your case because you have to provide testimony that covers your entire case. And if you don't provide uh, salient testimony, then they're going to say, oh, why'd you leave all this stuff out? <laughs> um, so, so they use that against you. Kind even of, yeah, You exactly. might have assumed that they had done their homework and right. read it. Exactly. So when you, when you coach a client, you have to you know, get, them, get them to play this game with the asylum officer that they don't know about. I see. And then um, you also have to make sure that they're presenting their testimony in a coherent way. You know, this is the biggest day of their lives, or at least one of them. Um, and so and they probably have a lot to say. And so um, if, if and, and when you have a lot to say in a very nerve-wracking um, moment, then you may not be able to say it in a coherent way. Um, it's also a, such a hallmark of trauma. I mean, by definition, Part of how someone suffers with PTSD is that their memories are very fragmented yep. and very sensory. Right. And so to tell a story in a coherent way with like a beginning, middle, and end yeah, yeah. is already actually far along the process yep. in a recovery sense. How do you help people 
emotionally be mm-hmm. ready to tell stories that by definition are harrowing? Well, when I first meet an individual, I make sure that they've at least made an effort to seek counseling. Because um, that, that's another cultural thing, too, is a lot of individuals don't want to seek counseling because it might be looked down upon in their culture they're from, or they may make them, especially you see this from males, uh, they may make them look weak, um, so they don't need to do. Um, <clears throat> so I make sure that they start seeing a therapist, especially severely traumatized people. Um, I'll try to make that connection for that individual. And... I mean, that's the, the, the best way to do it. The other way is just, to, you know, as an attorney, I have to instill a lot of trust in my client. So the client has to really trust me. Um, and so my first meetings with a new client or a new individual probably aren't, we're not going to cover very dramatic stuff until that individual actually trusts who I am and what I'm there to do. And that's another thing, too, is that a lot of individuals coming from other countries don't trust lawyers because um, we might be in it for self-serving um, reasons, um, for monetary gain. Um, obviously, you don't get that. Um, or, uh, you know, we might be in collusion with the government of the United States, stuff like that. But they have no basis or history of trusting authorities. Sure, right, or very little. Well, by definition, <laughs> right, if the government has to be complicit with their persecution, Yeah. right? Yeah. Um, so, you know, there, it depends on the client. So someone who's very severely traumatized, they may not even have uh, a substantive client meeting with that person until they've gone through, you know, some counseling sessions. With and how person. eligible are they for therapy? So if they come in and they don't have citizenship, are they eligible for main care? No. Um, at least a limited form of it. I think so after, after they apply for asylum. Uh, there are, you know, there's behavioral, there's, a, there's Portland, I think it's behavioral health and community counseling, um, and they provide counseling services to Maine residents. Essentially free? Yeah. Yeah. It's good to know that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they're fantastic. And sometimes individuals are, you know, even though it's always fascinating to me when this happens, an individual has gone, been severely traumatized, and even within the first meeting, they feel open enough to tell, tell me all about why they're there, um, especially if they know that I might be able to help them get through this process. Um, so it, it really depends on the person. Well, I'm so struck because by, by definition, one, you know, trauma affects people in many ways, but two of them are difficulty with trust and difficulty in telling a coherent yeah. story. And in and what asylum does is basically make those two things part of the condition of arriving at safety. Right. These two things that are actually set up to be two of the most hard things for them to do. Yeah. And so part of your job, it sounds like, is to really help them do that. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Advising a client on being as open as they possibly can about their story can be difficult, but it's actually... Um, Probably the e- one of the easier parts of my job. Um, What's the hardest part of your job? I guess dealing with it day to day. I mean, um, as an you know, I'm an individual myself, and, I, and I've had luckily I've had a fantastic um, upbringing. Um, I didn't I didn't have to go through horrible things in my life, um, and I'm horribly grateful <laughs> to everyone who's made my life what it is. But encountering individuals who I feel are just are just great people who had to go through these difficult things, no fault of their own. Um, just by a, you know accident of birth, usually um, having to deal with that, I guess on a, you know a day to day basis, and having to deal with. Right, uh, and so in my field, we call that vicarious trauma. I've heard that term. Yeah. Do you, do you get support for that? Because you're being exposed to really devastating stories, one after another. Well, no, not uh, professional support, but you know, definitely support of my 
you know, my parents and my friends and, um, you know, doing other things that aren't uh, job related outside of the office. Um, to, oh, to but out. other asylum lawyers, like I can even imagine nationally, mm-hmm. there isn't like there aren't groups where you can sort of talk to each other about what this is, the toll it takes for you. No, but it's a really good idea, <laughs> especially <laughs> legal aid lawyers. I would wish it for you. Phil. But immigration lawyers um, generally, you know, the good thing about immigration lawyers are a small bar uh, nationally. Um, and so, you know, it's a good community. And so, you know, there is that outlet too to just talk to you. And also just in the office, um, you know, if someone's having a bad day, you know, we can feel, we feel free to talk, talk each other, talk to each other about whatever is going on and how to deal with it. You know, and also, I mean, as an attorney, you know, I'm, I'm really, t- I'm, I'm coming at it as a professional with a, with a, with a problem to solve. So, uh, you know, I really can't get caught up in a person's story and trauma. I really, you know, I have a task to do and I, you know, I can't have anything. Gives you a little distance. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Much needed distance. Yeah. So having had the chance in this series to meet and be really moved by and inspired by a number of women mm. who uh, have been helped, many mm. of them by ILAP, I really want to thank you for what your organization is doing. And um, on behalf of all of us in a way in Maine, because we benefit so much from what these people bring. And, uh, you know, I think back to where you started when you were writing about the the benefits to music from, mm-hmm. you know, immigrant culture. And I feel like that's just a tiny piece of ways that we all benefit so much. Thank you, Phil. Well, thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. If someone wants to learn more about ILAP and or possibly even wants to support ILAP, how can they find you on the web? Our uh, web address is ilapmain.org. So it's I-L-A-P-M-A-I-N-E dot O-R-G. Great. A quick reminder to please take a moment and go to safespaceradio.com and click on survey to give us your feedback about this show. If you want to stay connected to these issues, you can like us on Facebook or follow us on Twitter at Safe Space Radio. You can also find us on the web at safespaceradio.com and listen to all of our past shows, including the earlier series we did on Somali immigrants in Maine from a couple of years ago. While you're there, please subscribe to our email list to find out about each week's new show as soon as it's released. My thanks to Gabe Graben for producing the show and to Jim Russell for being our editorial advisor. Coming up next is Speak Freely.